morning to you, you, good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I am your host today, Shante Charles. And I hope that you're having a great and wonderful day. Now, I'm not Mr. Rogers in the neighborhood who would put on, often put on his socks and his shoes. Um, (laughs) But I definitely see I need to get myself a little bit more moisturized. So, uh, excuse me while I do that. (laughs) It's my version of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Good morning, everyone. I hope that you're having a great and wonderful day. This is Daring Dialogues, and I'm your host today, Shante Charles. This is Thinking Thursday, Theology Thursday, where we talk and we think and we work through our beliefs and our perspective on spirituality. We learn about other people. Uh, We dive a little bit deeper into uh, the areas of Christianity because we know that um, if you say you're a Christian, most of the time, you know, that can encompass a whole lot. So sometimes people say, well, what's your denomination or what's your leaning? Um, When people say they're a Christian, they say, what kind of Christian are you? Do you believe in the Christ? What do you believe about the Christ? Do you believe that he came here in bodily form and walked the earth? Do you believe that um, he was a myth that was created by a particular government? Do you believe um, that he is just a divine essence and that, you know, the Bible is a parable of sorts to teach you different things about God? And for that, I say, um, There's some truth to some of that, but you really kind of have to dig in for yourself and study church history and study world history and how those two things intertwine. Because oftentimes we try to separate church history from world history and it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense unless you are putting those two things together to understand what was happening in the world at the time and what was happening in the world of people who believed at the time. All right, just like with uh, what we've been doing in our Sunday dialogue with the Great Awakening, um, a lot of people try to separate the Great Awakening out to make it like it was this phenomenal, incredible, miracle time where people were accepting God. But if you put it in the context of history, the same people that were quote unquote accepting God were also murdering black people. They also wanted black people to be enslaved into perpetuity. Their conscience pricked them about the condition of black people in America. And there were white preachers who also owned people who convinced them that no, 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 no. What your conscience is telling you, um, go ahead and ignore that. And here's our way around really addressing what your consciousness is telling you about your treatment of black human beings in America. So you have to put things in context, context. Somebody type that into the chat, context, (laughs) context. Black liberation theology that we've been reading about, right? Is not being created in a vacuum. It is being created. James Cone is saying there is a necessity for this kind of theology because here in America, the theology says that we are not human. The theology says that we are not equal. The theology says that we are cursed and that we are a burden upon the world. So there's a reason why There was such a thing called Black Liberation Theology and of course still goes into today. It was a necessity to have a theology that liberated Black people from the concepts of inferiority 
and superiority that was being fed to them through a religious, particularly Christian lens. So it wasn't just like, oh, this man just made this up <laughs> out of nowhere. So we're just going to discard it because it's made up. Well, a lot of theology and theological ideas and thoughts are made up based on a person's perception of the word of God. So if we're going to throw him out, then we got to throw out a whole bunch of other people, including all of these slave-owning theologians that people love to quote. James Cone didn't own anybody. So I'm going to tend to listen to James Cone's perception of the word of God far more than I'm going to listen to somebody who thought it was okay to enslave my ancestors. Welcome. To Thinking Thursday, Theology Thursday. Now there is a lot happening in the uh, Christian world right now. And I don't know if we're going to get into it uh, this Thursday. I might save that. I think I'm going to save that for our last Thursday show, which I believe is next week. Um, so yeah, let me do that. That way we can kind of do a whole culmination of contemporary Christian issues. We'll, we'll call it that. CCI. Uh, Pastor Ben, remind me, text me that. Contemporary Christian issues. And we'll just cover all of the, uh, well, we can't cover all of it because it's more than an hour. <laughs> we'll cover some of the more recent Christian controversies. Um, and we'll call that show Contemporary Christian Issues. That'll probably be our last Thursday show of the season. Let's hop in. Let's hop into Carved in Ebony. We are going to look at Isn't Her Grace Amazing? The Women Who Changed Gospel Music Today. And then we'll look at Black Theology and Black Power. But I want to get to this next young lady in this book. Obviously, we are not going to finish this book this season. Um, we will probably come back to it in season 12 and uh, take, a look, take a look at the rest of this book. We've got quite a few, quite a few more uh, women to talk about. But this is going to be who we read about today. Maria Stewart. Where are our illustrious ones? What if I am a woman? If not, is not the God of ancient times the God of these modern times? Maria Stewart. I was raised to be very defensive of America's legacy, the author says. There were an ungrateful people, I was taught, who stood poised to defame the name of the nation that had birthed me. In their quest to right the wrongs of my ancestral home, they were going a step too far sullying the legacy of this great nation by questioning her morality, her worthiness as the crown jewel that deserved the title of world superpower. My parents meant well, she says. They were, after all, raising me in a nation where I am free to praise the name of Christ, a luxury that Christians throughout history have not had the privilege of claiming. America is a rich nation. America is a promising nation. America is still a young and inventive nation. We have not been around for thousands of years. And America, I was taught for all of her flaws, is at her heart a quote-unquote Christian nation. It wasn't until adulthood, armed ironically with the tools that these same parents gave me to dive deep into primary sources and read them for exactly what they are, that I began to question these mantras. Was America a Christian nation? Had it always been understood as such by all of its residents? And as a descendant of the enslaved, was I the inheritor of a legacy that saw America in this shining light? I must answer no. And I do not answer that standing in the ranks of critical race theorists the church so intensely opposes and often fears at this moment in history, or the secular humanists, Marxists, or other is that I personally was taught to fear in the times past, I stand in the line of a very well-documented prophetic legacy 
peppered not only with men like Frederick Douglass, but women like Maria Stewart, and men like the one who inspired her, David Walker. In 1829, David Walker wrote his appeal to the colored citizens of the world. In this stirring appeal, Walker himself a Christian lambasted his own nation for participating in the barbarous trade of shadow slavery and called an entire nation to repentance. Wasting no time, he launches into his preamble. This is what he wrote. Having traveled over a considerable portion of these United States and having in the course of my travels taken the most accurate observations of things as they exist, the result of my observations has warranted the full and unshaken conviction that we, colored people of these United States, are the most degraded, wretched, and abject set of beings that ever lived since the world began. And I pray God that none like us ever may live again until time shall be no more. They tell us of the Israelites in Egypt, the Helots in Sparta, and of the Roman slaves, which last were made up from almost every nation under heaven, whose sufferings under those ancient and heathen nations were in comparison with ours under this enlightened and quote-unquote Christian nation, no more than a cipher. Or in other words, those heathen nations of antiquity had but little more among them than the name and form of slavery. While wretchedness and endless miseries were reserved, apparently, in a file to be poured out upon our fathers, ourselves, and our children by Christian Americans. <clears throat> yes, in 1829, again, people were well aware of the atrocities that were happening in this country under the, under the banner of Christianity. They were not confused that this was wrong, that it was immoral that it was depraved behavior coming from people who named the name of Christ. Walker continues to call for judgment against the United States for her participation in this enterprise, as other nations, both past and present, have been judged. <clears throat> the interesting thing here is that for all intents and purposes, as we can clearly see, America does not ever think it will be judged for shadow slavery. How do I know this? Because look at the laws that are being passed. Look at the bills that are being passed. Look at the representatives that we have in office. We don't think that ultimately we will be judged for shadow slavery as a nation. It is very evident. He goes on to say, <clears throat> all persons who are acquainted with history and particularly the Bible who are not blinded by the God of this world and are not actuated solely by avarice, which is greed, who are able to lay aside prejudice long enough to view candidly and impartially things as they were, are, and probably will be, who are willing to admit that God made every man to serve him alone and that man should have no other Lord or Lords but himself, that God Almighty is the sole proprietor or quote-unquote master of the whole human family and will not on any consideration admit of a colleague being unwilling to divide his glory with another and who can dispense with prejudice long enough to admit that we are men notwithstanding our prominent noses and woolly heads and believe that we feel for our fathers mothers wives and children as well as the whites do for theirs if walker's words sound familiarly prophetic it is because he speaks in the style of the American Jeremiah, so named for the prophet Jeremiah, who wept as he prophesied judgment on the nation of Israel for her idolatry and injustice against the vulnerable. Walker was a part of a movement that applied this Jeremiah style to distinctly black American woes and issues, and throughout his work and others, the African-American Jeremiah was born. If Walker's eventual calls for the enslaved to free themselves from the bonds that restrain them by any means necessary sound radical to you? Consider that Walker resided in a nation where the Declaration of Independence claimed that mankind has a right and a duty to do just that. If Walker's speech against the whites make you uncomfortable, 
I ask that you take into account the well-documented speech against Walker's ethnicity that he is responding to. Have they not, after having reduced us to the deplorable condition of slaves under their feet, held us up as descending originally from the tribes of monkeys or orangutans? Oh, my God, I appeal to every man of feeling. Is not this insupportable? Is it not heaping the most gross insult upon our miseries because they have got us under their feet and we cannot help ourselves? Oh, pity us, we pray thee, Lord Jesus, Master. Walker's language is forceful here. To any white contemporary guilty of the sins that he outlines, it would be frightful. But it is no more forceful than the language of the prophets of old. And if we truly believe that America's shadow slavery was an evil institution, and the eyewitness accounts of so many enslaved Americans tell us that we must believe that, no matter what our modern historical gymnastics demand of us, then what other language could possibly be more appropriate than the language of judgment and repentance. Before black liberation theology was codified, while Karl Marx was still a young man, before critical race theory was a twinkle in Gramscian's Marx, Marxism's eye, David Walker was lambasted for the so-called Christian nation of America based sheerly on his understanding of God's word. I will leave the critique of his work for another text, as there are indeed things to criticize. But the point I'm making is this. I call God, I call angels, I call men to witness that the destruction of the Americans is at hand and will be speedily consummated unless they repent. Walker urges, and, but O oh, Americans, Americans, I warn you in the name of the Lord, whether you will hear or forbear, to repent and reform, or you are ruined. He's not calling for revival, folks. He's calling for repentance and reform before the nation comes to ruin. So here we are, what, close to 200 years after this speech. And as a nation, we still have chosen not to repent and not to reform. So we can't say that we haven't been given time. Birth of a speech maker. Maria Stewart was born in Connecticut in 1803. By the time she was five years old, both of her parents had died, leaving Maria to fend for herself as the indentured servant of, for, of a clergyman for the next decade. Before Maria left, she would begin to slow the slow work of teaching herself how to read in the clergyman's extensive library. At 15, Maria left to become a maid. It was during this period that she took advantage of the local Sabbath schools and started to piece together more of an education for herself. It was also through Sabbath school that Maria continued her religious education, although her dramatic conversion was a few years off yet. In 1826, Maria married James Stewart, a comfortably wealthy veteran of the War of 1812. It was by James' side that she joined the black middle class of Boston, Massachusetts. Just three years after their marriage, however, James died and white executors cheated Maria out of her money from his will. Once again, the young woman found herself destitute. At this point, she began writing for William Lloyd Garrison's famous abolitionist magazine, The Liberator. In 1831, she began giving her first public addresses. Maria's public address were, were noted for several reasons. First, she spoke in the rhetorical style of the African-American Jeremiad, which she had been inspired to perfect from her reading of David Walker, whom she called a most noble, fearless, and undaunted man. <clears throat> Excuse me. David Walker's speech can be understood as an outworking of the tradition of the African-American Jeremiad, particularly in his calls for the repentance of white America. While many historians focus on the more radical aspect of his speech, that is, his call for black Americans to take their freedom by any means necessary, they sometimes neglect to hold space for his clarion call out to white America, beseeching white Americans to atonement. 
Oh, Americans, Americans, I call God, I call angels, I call men to witness that your destruction is at hand and will be speedily consummated unless you repent. It is in the spirit of David Walker that Maria felt herself moved to speak, not just because of care for her countrymen, but in response to the call of the gospel on her life. This is what one of the things she says. And truly, I can say with St. Paul that at my conversion, I came to the people in the fullness of the gospel of grace. Having spent a few months in the city previous, I saw the flourishing conditions of their churches and the progress they were making in their Sabbath schools. I visited their Bible classes and heard of the union that existed in their female associations. On my arrival here, not finding scarce an individual who felt interested in these subjects, and but few of the whites except Mr. Garrison and his friend Mr. Knapp, and hearing that those gentlemen had observed female influence was powerful, my soul became fired with a holy zeal for your cause. Every nerve and muscle in me was engaged in your behalf. I felt that I had a great work to perform and was in haste to make a profession of my faith in Christ that I might be about my father's business. Maria's call to speak on behalf of her black brethren then flowed out of her calling as a woman of God. We cannot understand Maria's zeal for equality without understanding her zeal for the gospel. Her understanding that she was created in God's image bolstered her calls for white America to make space for its black brethren. And this is the last thing uh, that I'll read today on Maria Fearing. I encourage you to continue to study her. Many things because your skins are tinged with a sable hue that you are an inferior race of beings, but God does not consider you as such. He has formed and fashioned you in his own glorious image and has bestowed upon you reason and strong powers of intellect. He has made you to have dominion over the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air, and the fish of the sea. He has crowned you with glory and honor. He has made you but a little lower than the angels. And according to the Constitution of these United States, he has made all men free and equal. Whew. Mm -mm -mm. I love it. We have a strong, rich history of black men and women resisting the tyranny, resisting the tyranny of inhumanity, of dehumanization, and of degradation. But guess what? Our children aren't learning that in public schools. They're learning that their existence began as enslaved people in the United States and that they just accepted their lot and that they just sat down and took it. They're not learning about insurrections like Nat, Turney, uh, Nat Turner, Denmark, VC. They're not learning about that. They're not. They're not learning about people like Maria Fearing and David Walker. Those writings are not in their history books. They're not learning about James Cone. They're not learning about the people who actually stood up and resisted being labeled in the way that they were. They're not. And so we must teach. It is our job and our responsibility to teach. All right, let's look at another powerhouse gospel singer. This is from the section. What is this section again? This is from the section Crossover Queens. Crossover Queens. One of the most notable crossover queens in this section that we're not going to cover, though, is Cece Winans, because a lot of people know Cece Winans, and Mary Mary. Today, we're going to cover Mavis Staples. Born July 10th, 1939, 
she is still living. So tributes to her. Hometown, Chicago, Illinois, notable gospel hits, Uncloudy Day, Fix Me Jesus, Sit Down Servant. Notable crossover hits, I'll Take You There, Respect Yourself, If You're Ready, Come Go With Me. Awards and accolades, three Grammys, a Rock and Roll Hall and Fame in 1999, Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 2005, and Kennedy Center Honors in 2016. This is the Staples Singers, 1970. So many fantastic things were happening between 1960 and 1970 in gospel music. When the Staples Singers took on their first live performance, the Mavis and Mavis Staples was just 13 years old. They sang the same song three times for an encore as the legendary leader of the group Roebuck Pox Staples taught the burgeoning group only one song from beginning to end. Five years later, after Mavis graduated from high school and now with a full roster of songs in tow, the entire family went on the road and took their hand-clapping and foot-stomping music to churches and live venues throughout the country. Mavis couldn't help but be influenced by good music as her family's Southside Chicago home was constantly filled with singers like Sam Cooke, Curtis Mayfield, Lou Rawls, and gospel legend Mahalia Jackson. Now, can you imagine all of those voices in one living room? <laughs> the Staple Singers signed their first record deal in 1952 with VJ Records, and their first recorded single, Uncloudy Day, was one of the first gospel songs to sell over a million copies. Here is Mavis in her element, circa, it doesn't say. In an early video recording of the Staple Singers from the 1960s, a young Mavis and her sister Yvonne are clad in choir robes, while her brother Purvis and Pop Staples were sharply dressed in their finest Sunday suits. Mavis's signature voice could be heard on such gospel hits as Sit Down Servant and Fix Me Jesus. Audiences were often surprised to see a young petite Mavis belting out tunes with a voice that sounded like it belonged to a man or a robust woman twice her size. After meeting with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in the early 1960s, the staple singers began including protest songs in their repertoire. Pop Staples famously said, if he can preach it, we can sing it. Their frequent performances in the church circuit throughout the South almost landed the legendary quartet in jail. After an altercation with a white gas station attendant in Memphis in 1964, the Staples singers were arrested briefly on false robbery and assault charges. The local police captain released them after he recognized who they had arrested. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> this is a young Mavis Staples in London in 1989. As she said, we went from singing with just pops on guitar, and then when we went to stacks, they put a rhythm section behind us. Everybody would hit the dance floor, including church folks. Many black people in the South weren't as fortunate as the staple singers to avoid the atrocities of police brutality and discrimination. This incident further fueled the group to add more protest songs to their performances such as Why You Treat Me So Bad and Long Walk to D.C. The staple singers were invited to perform at larger mainstream venues such as the Newport Folk Festival in 1964. By the early 1970s, the staple singers traded in their church robes and Sunday suits for bell bottoms and jumpsuits and sky-high afros. Their performance at Watt Stacks, Watt Stacks, or Watt Stacks in 1972 features Mavis's legendary voice crooning out their biggest hits. One year before this soul-stirring performance, Mavis and the Staple Singers were signed to the legendary Stax Records. <clears throat> Everybody would hit the dance floor, she said, including church folks. Their first album with the label yielded the R&B hit, I'll Take You There, 
Mavis's legendary lead vocals could be heard on subsequent hits throughout the 1970s, including Respect Yourself and Let's Do It Again. As the staple singers welcomed a wider audience and more top 40 hits throughout the 70s, they responded to the critics who insisted that they strayed from their gospel roots by proclaiming that the core of their message was always love. While the staple singer's popularity began to slow down during the 80s, that didn't stop Mavis from continuing to tour as a solo artist and delight audiences all around the world. Her 13 solo albums include recording with Prince in the 90s and producing a gospel album in celebration of close family friend and mentor Mahalia Jackson titled Spirituals and Gospel, dedicated to Mahalia Jackson and working with legendary blues and bluegrass producer Jeff Tweedy in the 2000s. She also earned her first of three Grammy Awards in 2005 with her album, One True Vine. In 2016, she received the Kennedy Center Honors and she triumphantly returned as a headliner at the Newport Folk Festival. When Mavis celebrated her 80th birthday in 2019, there were multiple celebrations to honor her 70 years in the business with tributes at the Apollo Theater, the Newport Folk Festival, and performances by Nora Jones, John Baptiste, David Byrne of the Talking Heads, and Ben Harper. She is also a frequent performer at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, whose director, David Rodriguez, said, Mavis has a voice that rumbles in my chest for days. Audiences always connect with her because she brings a level of grit, soul, and authenticity to every performance. Here are the Staples sisters singing again in the 1970s. This is when they made their transition from choir robes to jumpsuits and afros. And on this page, this is her hanging out with Whoopi Goldberg. Um, her getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with um, Reverend Jesse Jackson uh, standing with her. Um, what else? Uh, Ladisi and Mavis Staples performing together and her at the Kennedy Center Honors. So that is all of those pictures. All right. That was Mavis Staples. Getting into our last reading for today. We're still talking about James Cone's work. And he's sort of defining for people and making it very clear what the perspectives are when it concerns the black theology and what he intended. What he intended. Now, there are other people who say that they practice black liberation theology. But this is the originator, so that's why we are reading him first. This is James Cone on eschatology. The most corrupting influence among the black churches was their adoption of the white lie that Christianity is primarily concerned with an otherworldly reality. Whew. Sit with that for a moment. We can tell, or at least I can, you can tell the churches that believe that Christianity is primarily concerned with an otherworldly reality or the by and by or how will you spend eternity? How can we tell? Because when we bring up what's happening that is destructive to black people right now, in real time, in present day, they are either silent or they will say, well, you are dealing in a social gospel and God is not concerned with that. He's just concerned with your soul. When someone tells you that God is just concerned with your soul, they are reiterating a doctrine from the 1800s, which is like a, a doctrine of disembodiment. This is the same doctrine that was delivered 
two slave masters on plantations to say to black people, we believe in your soul salvation, but as far as your body, your body belongs to us. Your body belongs to shadow slavery. Your body belongs to the system of cash, capital, and credit. And you are that cash, capital, and credit in this life. So because of that, yes, you're going to have a great life in the afterlife. But right now, you belong to us. White missionaries persuaded most black religious people that life on earth was insignificant because obedient servants of God could expect a reward in heaven after death. Now this plays out in so many different ways if you listen closely enough to the way that people talk. If life is insignificant on earth, and I convince you that life is insignificant on earth, then you look around and you see a whole demographic that is 228 years ahead of you in wealth building, you're not supposed to be upset about that. You're not supposed to be angry about that. You're supposed to understand that, well, that's just the way the world works. That's just the way things are. Because after all, life on earth is insignificant, right? It's okay for one particular group of people to own 95% of the wealth in the world, or at least in the United States, because after all, life on earth is insignificant. So it doesn't matter how horrible your life may be on this earth. Mind you, I don't want my life to be like that. I don't want to be oppressed and stressed and dehumanized, but it's okay for you to be that way because life is insignificant on this earth. And so you're supposed to accept this, that you have a reward in heaven after your death. This is often why they don't mourn black bodies. Why? Because, well, they're, they're out of this realm. They're out of this place of suffering. So they're on to reward. Okay, they were killed. They were innocent. They were unarmed, right? They've moved on to a better existence. There's no call in this existence to rectify the wrongs that are happening because they really want to point you to, quote unquote, the reward in the afterlife. As one might expect, obedience meant adherence to the laws of the white masters. Most black people were accepting this white interpretation of Christianity, which divested them of the concern they might have had about their freedom in the present. We don't want you to be concerned about your freedom in the present, your liberation, this oppression stuff. Why are y'all still talking about that? Slavery was so long ago. We don't want you to be concerned about freedom in the present while we yet create laws to further oppress and suppress you. Even a casual look at the black spirituals shows their otherworldly character. Here's one. Oh Lord, when I die, I want to go to heaven, my Lord, when I die. You'd better, you'd better mind, you'd better mind, for you got to give account in judgment, you'd better mind. So black people were taught that they would be giving account in judgment, but clearly white people were not taught that. They don't think that they're going to be judged, and we can tell by their behavior and actions. Other songs, such as Religion is a Fortune, I Really Do Believe, By and By, All God's Chillin's Got Wings, Get On Board Little Chillin' and Give Me Jesus, 
reveal the same mood. This otherworldly ethos is still very much a part of the black churches. This is not merely a problem of education among the black clergy. Mainly, it shows that white power is so overwhelming in its domination of black people that many black people have given up hope for change in this world. By reaching for heaven, they are saying that the odds are against them now. God must have something better in store for black people later. That is why a great many black preachers say, Heaven is my home and I am homesick. There I will meet all the saints who have gone on before me. My mother and father will be there in that great host. I want to see them again. I want to look into the eyes of Abraham, take a long walk with Moses, talk with Ruth, feel the arms of Esau and shake Jacob by the hand. There I will have the chance to ask Jacob about his suffering, thank the prophets for their courage, and sit beside Lazarus. Above all, I want to be with Jesus of Galilee, my Lord and my God. There will be no more crying up there, no more pain up there, no second-class citizenship up there. There will be nothing but peace in God's kingdom. Up there, I will have a time. <laughs> and I've come to tell you, there's a generation who is not singing by and by when the morning comes. They saying, now and now. What do you want? Justice. When do you want it? Now. The contrast between white treatment of black people as things and God's view of them as persons is so great that it is easy for blacks to think that God has withdrawn his from history and the devil has taken over. Black people begin to affirm that if one has Jesus, it does not matter whether there is injustice, brutality, and suffering. Jesus thus becomes a magical name, which gives the people a distorted hope in another life. Through identification with a name, unbearable suffering becomes bearable. Instead of seeking to change their earthly state, they focus their hopes on the next life in heaven. In reality, this is not the perspective of the biblical faith, but rather an expression of a hopeless faith, which cannot come to terms with the reality of this world. Understandably, most black intellectuals reject this attitude, especially the advocates of black power. As one black man put it, the black man stood on the corner and said, take the world and give me Jesus. So that's just what the white man did. Jesus will help us, the black man said. Jesus couldn't help his own self. He fooled around and got himself nailed to the cross. There is certainly something to be said for that idea that any concept of God which defines him as removed from the suffering of black people now cannot win the devotion of the new black man. The passive acceptance of injustice is not the way of human beings. If eschatology means that one believes that God is totally uninvolved in the suffering of men, because he is preparing them for another world, then black theology is not eschatological. It is earthly theology. It is not concerned with the last things, but with the white thing that has been placed upon the black man. Black theology, like black power, believes that the self-determination of black people must be emphasized at all costs, recognizing that there is only one question about reality for blacks. What must we do about white racism? There is no room in this perspective for an eschatology dealing with the reward in heaven. Black theology has hope for this life. The appeal to the next life is a lack of hope. Such an appeal implies that absurdity has won and that one is left merely with an unrealistic gesture towards the future. Heavenly hope becomes a platonic grasp for another reality because one cannot live meaningfully amid the suffering of this world. In traditional eschatology, suffering is often interpreted as the means for heavenly interest, entrance. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. Evil and injustice are transformed into temporary good in view of the apocalypse. Black theology rejects this interpretation, sharing instead the viewpoint of Dr. Ruth in Camus's The Plague. During the height of the plague in the Algerian city of Iran, Rue, Father Panelo, and others witnessed the prolonged death agony of a child. A moment after the child dies, Rue rushes from the room, a bewildered look on his face, and Panelo tries to stop him. Rue turns fiercely to him and says, Ah, that child, anyhow, was innocent, and you know it as well as I do. He goes outside and sits on a bench. He says, why was there that anger in your voice just now? What we've been seeing was, an unbear was as unbearable to me as it was to you. Rue turns toward Panelo. I know, I'm sorry, but weariness is a kind of madness, and there are times when the only feeling I have is one of revolt. I understand. That sort of thing is revolting because it passes our human understanding, but perhaps we should love what we cannot understand. Rue straightened up slowly. He gazed at Panelou, summoning to his gaze all the strength and fervor he could muster against his weariness. No, father, I have a very different idea of love, and until my dying day, I shall refuse to love a scheme of things in which children are put to torture. This is the key to black theology. It refuses to embrace any concept of God which makes black suffering the will of God. Black people should not accept slavery. They should not accept lynching or any form of injustice as a tendency to good. It is not permissible to appeal to the idea that God's will is inscrutable or that the righteous sufferer will be rewarded in heaven. If God has made the world in which black people must suffer, and if he is a God who rules, guides, and sanctifies the world, then that would make God a murderer. To be the God of black people, he must be against the oppression of black people. The idea of heaven is irrelevant for black theology. The Christian cannot waste time contemplating the next world. Radical obedience to Christ means that reward cannot be the motive for your actions. It is a denial of faith to insist on the relevance of reward. Is this not what St. Paul had in mind when he spoke of justification? When Paul uses the term justification in reference to Christ, he means that sinful man, through the complete trust alone, is accepted by God and is declared and treated as a righteous man. He is emphasizing man's inability to make himself righteous. All human strivings are nil. Man cannot earn God's acceptance. Salvation is by the free grace of God. There is no place for the conceit of that men can save themselves by their own efforts, if they try hard enough. The incarnation means that man stands unworthy before God. Man is helpless under God's wrath, but God is not only just in condemning and punishing sin, he is so completely just that he also provides a means of deliverance from sin, giving freely what man could never achieve for himself. Therefore, there is no place here for a reward. In fact, man is now made free for obedience without worrying about a pat on the back from God. He now knows that he is right with God because God has put him in the right. This new gift of freedom means that he can be all for the neighbor. To allow one's concern to be directed toward heaven is to deny this freedom. It means that in some way, what one does is worthy and thereby guarantees his favor with God. The free Christian man cannot be concerned about a reward in heaven. Rather, he is a man who through the freedom granted in Christ is ready to plunge himself into the evils of the world and revolt against all inhuman powers that would enslave mankind. He does not seek salvation for he knows that to seek it is to lose it. It's already been given. He that would save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will gain it. He is a rebel against inhumanity and injustice.
Black theology rejects the tendency of some to interpret eschatology in such a way that a cleavage is made between our world and God's world. Black theology insists that genuine biblical faith relates eschatology to history, that is, to what God has done, is done, is doing, excuse me, and will do for his people. It is only because of what God has done and is now doing that we can speak meaningfully of the future. With a black perspective, eschatology comes to mean joining the world and making it what it ought to be. It means that the Christian man looks to the future, not for a reward or possible punishment, but as a means of making him dissatisfied with the present. His purpose for looking to a distant past or an unrealized future is that both disclose the ungodliness of the present. Looking to the future, he sees that present injustice cannot be tolerated. Black theology asserts an eschatology that confronts a world of racism with black power. Eschatology does not mean merely salvation of the end or of the soul, individual rescue from evil in the world, comfort for the troubled conscience, but also the realization of the hope of justice, the humanizing of mankind, the socializing of humanity, and peace for all creation. Get us straight, James Cone. Get us straight. All right, we've got a few minutes here, about 10 minutes. And I know Pastor Ben has something to say. This has been an, a, another episode of Daring Dialogues, and I've been your host today, Shante Charles. Thank you all for allowing me to read through excerpts from three different books today. Uh, remember, if you are uh, planning to join us next week, remember on next Tuesday, we'll be on the Black Table Talk Facebook page at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we'll be in conversation with author and professor Dr. Diane M. Stewart. She'll be talking Black women and Black love. Thank you for your time and attention. If you're listening by anchor, be well and be happy.